Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 51 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. It's really great to be back this week. Thanks so much to my sister Belinda for filling in and recording bits of the podcast for you guys for last week. I was literally left with a whisper, (laughs) so I wasn't at all able to record my podcast for you last week. This week we're joined by Riley Wiminger, who is a master's degree trained nutritionist and is dedicated to helping people overcome digestive issues such as IBS and SIBO and also the related issues that go along with them. She's overcome her own digestive issues and today she shows people how to eat flavorful, healthful, low FODMAP recipes that go above and beyond, helping people to live a healthier and happier life. And uh, she's very much a woman of my own heart with that. Today we're talking about food phobias and why it's so common, unfortunately, for SIBO patients to develop them and what we can do about it, and the signs that we can look for to see if we might have developed them ourselves. I know I became quite apprehensive around certain foods. We talk about um, the reintroduction phase of foods as well, what to look for, and also understanding what it is in foods that you're reacting to, rather than just eliminating them and not knowing why they've become problematic for you. Plus, we also touch on the deficiencies that Riley is seeing in patients and what we can look for to see if we might be deficient in certain nutrients or vitamins or minerals because we're eating a restricted diet. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Riley Wiminger. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Riley Wiminger. It's really wonderful to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now, you are a fellow SIBOer, so you know exactly what it's like to live and breathe SIBO. Um, I'd love for you to share with my listeners your own personal uh, journey with this condition. Absolutely. So I've really had digestive issues my whole life. I had colic as a baby, and then in high school, I remember having just really awful, embarrassing gas um, and other symptoms that I didn't really know weren't normal. Um, But it wasn't until after college when um, I had accepted a job in the accounting field and um, I was getting ready to study for the CPA exam. 
And I was just so sick. I was reacting to everything that I ate. And I would have this extreme itching on my legs every night um, where I would itch my legs until they would bleed. And I basically saw that that couldn't continue. And so I really started focusing on my health and making it a priority. And I started learning so much and became so passionate about it and realizing how many other people were out there struggling. I wanted to help people. So I did a total change with my education and I ended up going back to school and getting a master's in nutrition. Um, And the rest is history. It is, as they say. And uh, so today you are working as a nutritionist, are you not? Yes, I am. I see clients by video consult. And then I also do some personal chefing for people um, here locally in Portland, Oregon. Which is wonderful. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how you can find support um, when you're going through your SIBO journey. And I think having someone like yourself who um, has the uh, nutritional qualification as well as the personal experience with SIBO must just be really comforting for those SIBOers that uh, utilize your service because they know, you know exactly what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so nice to feel understood by your practitioner. Um, for example, when people are reacting to foods that are normally viewed as healthy, it's sometimes really hard for practitioners who haven't been through that to not think that the, the patient is just making it up or has is over... I don't know, uh, overthinking it. So it's it's really comforting. It is definitely. And one of the things that I know that really was really comforting to me when I finally found help was my practitioner telling me that she believed me. And, uh, and just knowing that someone understands you and believes you, I think can be so incredibly powerful to help you um, support yourself to feel like you can move forward and you can start to achieve health and wellness. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you found that. (laughs) So am I. Now, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today was food phobias. It's something that I'm seeing more and more, which devastates me in the SIBO community. And we, because us with SIBO, um, can get really unwell when we eat food, it's very understandable that we will become quite nervous and apprehensive around food. But what I'm seeing, and you know, and it really breaks my heart, is that this kind of nervousness around food is, is then progressing and turning into a phobia for many, many people. Um, and there's pure terror around reintroduction of foods and I see many people living off a handful of foods and, and even those foods are becoming problematic with them. Can you talk to, to myself and the listeners around you know, what's happening with these food phobias? Why are we developing them as, um, as SIBOers? Yeah, definitely. I think it's exactly what you identified. Um, people react to these foods and they've been reacting to them maybe for a long time for some people. And so food becomes the enemy for them. Um, but what I like to encourage people to see is that SIBO is a continuum. So in the literal sense, yes, there's a cutoff line for SIBO positive, SIBO negative. Um, but in practice, what I see is that it doesn't happen overnight. Um, people have often been sick for a long time and um, maybe have eaten poorly even for a long time and their symptoms still took a while to progress. Um, so I like to encourage people that if they do have a negative reaction to a new food that they, um, to try to 
analyze exactly what nutrient deficiencies were we have um, unless we're eating a diverse diet. And that's, that's really the best way to protect against them. Um, so just reassuring people that if you try these foods, it's not going to send you back into a spiral of SIBO land is, can be really helpful. Um, yeah. I think that that's a great piece of advice for the listeners that a, a meal, a bite of something, uh, you know, what, what people often say to me is I cheated, I failed. Um, that won't make you SIBO positive because of one small amount of food. And uh, I think that, you know, like you said, if we can remember that fact, um, then hopefully the phobia around food won't take hold. For those that are listening that are really identifying with it and they're thinking, I'm that's me, I'm really quite nervous around new foods. I'm really quite scared to bring new foods in. And I know this because that was where I was when I was um, well and truly um, going through my SIBO treatment. I, I was I felt good when I was eating limited foods, so I didn't want to change that and I didn't want to necessarily expand for a little while. I did ultimately, but it took me a while to get there. Do you have any advice on what a person can do who is recognizing that perhaps they've become a little bit nervous or phobic around food and how they can approach that to try and change that outlook for themselves? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing is really just to think about um, mindset and remembering that when we're in a stressed out state or we're worried that our food will cause harm, we're not going to be able to digest that food properly when we're in that state because our nervous system is not in the right place um, for sending energy to our digestive tract. Um, So one thing that can happen or one thing that we can do to kind of help that is to just take some deep breaths before meals um, to promote relaxation um, and remembering that food is here to nourish us and mentally and physically. Um, So just sometimes people can like repeat a mantra to themselves about um, food being nourishing um, or get creative with food and start to really love it again. Um, And then the other thing is that it's a realistic um, fear or worry um, that food could cause symptoms. And so talking with your doctor about, or your healthcare practitioner about what are some things you could do to bring down symptoms if a food does cause your, your symptoms to flare a little bit? Um, and then just like learning to recognize what are um, some of the triggers for you, um, but having a way to overcome them so that you can continue expanding your diet because it's really wonderful when you do discover a food that you, do, that you tolerate. Um, it makes life so much more fun. And just because a food can't be tolerated at the moment doesn't mean you won't always be able to tolerate it, does it? Absolutely, yes. Tolerances can change so much over time. And I also see that SIBO is not just a a straight line of exponential growth. Sometimes there's these little um, like plateaus and people maybe will dip down and not feel so well for a while, but um, it's usually a general upward trend and and people can start over time incorporating more and more foods and get back to a normal diet as, as they heal. I liked your um, comment about visualizing the food. And, and when I realized that I was approaching food from a very, very negative mindset, 
um, something that I that I started implementing was that I would visualize the nutrients coming into my body and acknowledging that the food that was on my plate was what I needed to eat at that moment in time to help me recover from this disorder. And um, that really helped me. It also helped me to pause and slow down and just approach eating in a more positive and loving way. In the past, I'd treated it as a race. You know, how quickly could I get the food inside of me so I could then get on and go and do something else? Whereas by slowing down and chewing and putting my knife and fork down between every bite and visualizing the nutrients and the vitamins and minerals and everything that I needed to to have a healthy life coming into my body with every mouthful, I found to be a really beneficial practice um, and that really helped me start to love food rather than see it as the enemy. Oh, that's so wonderful. I love that story. <laughs> yeah, people are, are so go, go, go in our society and um, remembering to slow down can be really, really beneficial. It can, but it can be very difficult to do. And it took me some time to really see that I was implementing it successfully every meal. Yes, it's definitely easier said than done. <laughs> it is. Now, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, your approach with the FODMAPs and you said something to me around, um, you know, being a bucket and I'd like you to explain to the listeners what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. So the way that the FODMAP diet is intended to be um, administered by nutritionists and dietitians, um, according to the creators of it, is that there's an elimination period, um, usually some no more than eight weeks, um, and then a reintroduction period where um, each of the different categories of FODMAPs are reintroduced. Um, and I, this it's a great approach because it gets people back to eating well again or eating a more expanded diet. Um, but the, the piece that I felt feel like is missing there is that oftentimes, unless you address why someone is reacting to FODMAPs, that reintroduction doesn't go so well. Um, and it's a much slower progression for many people into a more um, FODMAP heavy diet. And so I like to talk to people about FODMAPs being like a bucket or your the bucket is your individual tolerance to FODMAP containing foods. And this will change over time. The size of your bucket may change. Um, but foods that contain FODMAPs will fill the bucket a little bit more. And once the bucket fills, we see it as being your symptoms may be present. Um, so if we can figure out um, kind of how to, during the day, um, fill that bucket without letting it spill over or get, get to the point where we can recognize more subtle symptoms, um, we can help the bucket not get overfilled, basically. So if we think about um, at breakfast, maybe someone will eat low FODMAP as they're starting to heal and maybe at lunch as well, but maybe at dinner, they're, they're, they, know, they tune into their body and they notice that they're not feeling so bad. They might be able to incorporate some more high FODMAP vegetables or maybe if they're doing really well, maybe even a little bit of beans. Um, so using that as a way to help people get more FODMAPs into their diet, because ultimately a FODMAP, low FODMAP diet is not designed to be forever because um, FODMAPs are nutritious and they feed our bacteria. Um, and once we have 
good bacteria. We want to feed that good bacteria. How do you feel around the fear and phobias that um, that we see with people around those higher FODMAP foods? Um, do you think that having a list that, uh, you know, is, you know, these are the kind of avoid foods or these are the more problematic foods, do you think there's something in the, the wording that we use in these types of protocols that is helping to fuel those fears? Yeah, I think it's hard. I think that if you just give someone a handout, um, it's, that's kind of how it has to be to show them what, what is when they're starting out, what's going to be safest. Um, but if you just give that handout or you just see that handout without being explained that this is not meant to be forever, this is just a starting place, um, people get really stuck in that, um, in that avoid. Um, and it can go on for a while and that can be very dangerous to um, overall health. It can and, and it just fuels that fear and phobia around oh my gosh I can never I can never eat these foods well you can like you said um do you feel that there is um you know one of the concerns is that people can find this protocol online or you know you can buy books and they're they're doing it without the guidance of a nutritionist or dietitian yeah it's it's a huge problem I think um and I think that people don't understand the context of when these diets are supposed to be applied, how long, um, what they need to be looking out for. Um, and they get really stuck because they think that that's what they're supposed to be doing, but maybe their body is giving them other signals and they're not listening to their body because they don't have someone to advise them. Well, how does somebody go about this if they're listening and perhaps they've just started following the FODMAP diet because they saw it in one of the SIBO online forums or, um, online groups and uh, they could see that everybody else was following it. So they've gone and followed it. And, um, you know, how do they go and, and get help? Yeah. So the first thing I would have them do is to ask their doctor if they have a referral, because sometimes their doctor doesn't realize that um, they might need a little bit more help with something. Um, and so their doctor might have an awesome person who they can refer them to. Um, if that doesn't work, another option um there's everything from um, seeing a nutritionist dietitian one-on-one or um, there are programs out there that are created by nutritionists or created by dietitians that lead people through that elimination reintroduction phase. Um, unfortunately, there's not, I don't know of something like that for um, any of the SIBO specific diets or the diets that have been targeted for SIBO um, other than FODMAPs. Um, but for the low FODMAP diet, I do find that there are options out there for people who just can't afford to to talk to um, a nutritionist. I think that my approach around my healthcare has been, I've seen it as an investment rather than a cost. Now, I'm not flush with money. I'm, I'm not, I am sadly not in a position where money is no object. I have to be very frugal with what I do with my money. Um, but I made a decision early on that in order to truly recover and to regain my health, I was going to invest my money where it would be best spent. And that was on seeking the support from practitioners who knew exactly what they were doing. And that has really stood me well because I'm so much better than I ever was. I, you know, two and a half years down the track from that initial diagnosis and I feel like a million bucks. Now I'm not at the end of the journey by any means, but I'm so much more advanced because I believe I invested my money 
into the right kind of people. And, you know, that was my decision and it isn't necessarily always, you know, everybody's. But I looked at where I was spending my money and I thought, you know, right now, is it important for me to go and buy new clothes? No, it's not. I can survive in the clothes that I've got. Is it important for me to find a naturopath who knows exactly what she's talking about? Yes, it is. And uh, so I diverted my funds into that. And now I'm looking at, you know, other things. I've, you know, I've just uh, recently been to Florida and I've been assessed by the gorgeous um, Werns, Larry and Belinda Wern, who are the adhesion specialists, and they have confirmed what I suspected for a while, that I have adhesions. And so again, I'll be investing my money into my adhesion treatment to support, you know, moving forward and helping my structural issues with, you know, why I developed SIBO and all the rest. Um, and so I always, when I'm when I'm talking to people and they say, oh, it costs so much, I say to them, yes, there can be an expense, but sometimes we need to look at it as an investment because if we don't invest in our health today and we let it go for another 5, 10, 15, 20 or longer years, how much sicker will we be then and how much we will, will we regret our decision not to invest in ourselves today? Absolutely. It is completely an investment. And I think it's so hard for people to see that because they're so used to um, their insurance company paying for their medical expenses. Um, But if you talk to a lot of people, they're not feeling well um, doing that. And so they need to really take control of their health and um, start investing in themselves, whether that's through nutritious food or practitioners, like you said, Um, it's, it really makes a difference. And I also find that having the guidance of a practitioner who has seen what works for people and what doesn't is really valuable and can save you money on supplements or medications or whatever you need because you're not trying a bunch of things that don't actually work. (laughs) Exactly. And, and having someone on your support team that is dealing with SIBO in more than just one person. When we have SIBO, we're just dealing with our own SIBO. But when you work with a practitioner that specializes in this field, they're seeing it day in, day out, and they know, like you say, what works for people. And so they can bring great perspective to it, and they can also answer a lot of our questions. Um, You know, particularly when we're starting out on these diets, it can be quite confusing. For many people, it's a significant change from the way they've been eating, and it can feel overwhelming. And yet, when you can work with a nutritionist or dietitian or naturopath or any practitioner that is experienced, they can help guide you and take some of that fear away from the unknown. Absolutely. And I also wanted to mention that I loved what you said about the prevention piece um, of if people wait 10 years, they're going to be in a much worse place because prevention is so much easier than trying to fix an issue once it arises. It is. And I think sadly, um, those of us in the Western world have been conditioned by our pharmaceutical companies to believe that everything can be solved by popping a pill. And it can often be quite a big psychological evolution for us to realize that pills don't solve all our problems. And sometimes we have to roll our sleeves up and and knuckle down and, and do the work ourselves. And that can be really, really hard to realize that and and often you can feel quite angry why can't somebody else just solve the problem for you but when we do get to the point where we've taken control we're in charge it feels liberating but like you say we're we're really 
avoiding future issues by dealing with them today. And every day that you have dealt with it is a day that's going to be more beneficial to your future health, I I believe. Yes, definitely. And and it's amazing too how much you can learn and how much fun it is to learn about about your body. I find it fascinating. I feel like I'm a walking science experiment and, you know, I'm, I loved biology. I did biology all the way through to my final year of school because I just found it so fascinating. I get to relive passion I had when I was 17. It's in my final year of school and I'm, and I, I'm applying it to myself. And every day I learn something new and I'm interested and, you know, it's become my life now. Um, and it sounds strange, but I'm really glad I discovered I had SIBO because I've been able to make incredible changes to my life that I wouldn't have made otherwise. And so it's a positive thing for me, I think. Absolutely. I see it the same way. <laughs> it's a great little community we have here. Yeah. Now, one of the um, general components of a SIBO diet is reducing carbohydrates out. And, and I Many of the doctors talk about SIBO being really a hydrate malabsorption issue. I'd like to talk about what what it can look and feel like when we when we start going quite low carb when we start treating SIBO. Definitely, um, that carbohydrate malabsorption is absolutely a piece for a lot of people. Um, but I think that it gets taken a little bit too far sometimes. Um, For some people, they actually do feel fine, fairly low carb. Um, Others, not so much. And that depends on several factors. Um, But for those who end up not feeling so well, um, there's a variety of things that I commonly see. So if, if they start developing symptoms once they start this carbohydrate diet that they didn't, a low carbohydrate diet, that they didn't feel before, um, things like fatigue or brain fog or mood issues, um, undesired weight loss. That's made, it depends on, um, where someone starts, but, um, for a smaller person, five to 10 pounds of weight loss can be very significant, um, and can even cause them to start having, um, like, uh, hormonal issues, like stop they stop menstruating because they're not producing enough estrogen um, or showing like thyroid abnormalities on their labs that aren't really, that that don't go with any specific disease necessarily, but are showing that their thyroid is kind of struggling with not having, um, so not, uh, not having enough carbs. Um, And then the other thing that I sometimes see, especially with labs is that Um, their kidneys can start showing distress. And this would be if they were eating way too much protein, um, way too much animal protein, um, especially. Um, So if people are eating like a pound of meat or more per day, and I I see this pretty commonly when people um, go on SIBO diets, that's not a healthy balanced diet. And you may show signs of kidney distress um, at that level. And so um, those are signs that, hmm, something's not right about this what you're eating and the balance of things. Um, so those are the main things I see. And, um, part of the reason for that is that carbohydrates are the primary energy source for the brain. So that's why the fatigue and brain fog and mood issues might arise. Um, and with the mood issues also, um, carbohydrates play a role in neurotransmitter production, especially serotonin. Um, so that can impact the mood. Serotonin, we know also is involved in gut motility. So perhaps even having negative effects on the gut um, for some people. 
Um, and then also carbohydrates make it help us feel full. So if someone is hungry all the time and just nothing seems to um, curb that craving, maybe there's some sort of imbalance in their diet as well. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey guys, do you feel completely overwhelmed when it comes to figuring out what you can eat that's suitable for a SIBO diet? I know that I felt so overwhelmed at the start of my SIBO journey. And let's be honest, eating for SIBO can be challenging. It can downright suck at points. You've already got so much going on. You've got your treatments, you're trying to remember to take all your medications and your supplements. And not to mention all of the daily symptoms that you have to experience, the pain, the bloating, the constipation or diarrhea or both, and the brain fog and exhaustion. The list just goes on. Having someone else take that hassle away from you for planning your food can make your day just that little bit easier. And this is where I've come to your rescue. I've developed SIBO meal plans just for you. They take all of the stress away from planning your SIBO daily food intake. They're based on the SIBO biphasic diet by Dr. Narala Jacoby, and each meal plan is just for the specific phase it relates to. So you may be on phase one restricted or phase one semi-restricted or phase two reduce and repair. And there is a meal plan just for you. We've got 14 days of SIBO-friendly meals and recipes included. There's weekly shopping lists. There's handy hints and tips to make cooking easier. And every recipe is 100% gluten-free. The recipes are low-grain. We only use a little bit of rice or quinoa in the recipes depending on what phase you're following, of course. All the recipes are low carbohydrate, very low dairy, low sugar, and there are low FODMAP options included. The great news is that you can download it instantly and you can get cooking today. If you'd like to know more about the SIBO meal plans, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO hyphen meal hyphen plans or head to the show notes from today's episode and just click on the link there. I hope you enjoy the meal plans, guys. I know it's going to save you so much time, energy and effort and help you be compliant to your SIBO diet as you go through your treatment. Now let's get back to the show. Thing about the brain fog and, um, you know, some of those more mental side effects that we can feel. I see that in the support groups all the time with people talking about, oh, I'm feeling so brain foggy. And, you know, it would be very interesting to know whether those people are super low carb. And the other thing that you've said, which is also very interesting, is around um, slowing motility. And that's another thing I hear 
um, from people saying I'm really constipated. I've become more constipated since going on the SIBO diet because I feel like all I'm eating is meat and and a few vegetables. So when somebody is feeling like that, do you have any recommendations on types of carbohydrate foods that might be more suitable to somebody following a SIBO diet? Yeah, that's really hard because it is so individualized. Um, I would say some of the things that are commonly tolerated would be things like white rice and white potato and potato. We've heard that. Um, but for some people, they might try white rice and they say, oh no, that didn't work for me. So I just don't tolerate any carbs because those are the ones that are most tolerated by people uh, or they've been told that. Um, And so I say, okay, well then we have to try a different category because that category doesn't work for you. Um, So let's then try maybe brown rice. Maybe for some people, brown rice is better tolerated. Perhaps those people actually do need more fiber um, and the fiber in the brown rice helps them. especially maybe if they have like a fungal component and maybe the white rice um, is, is feeding that fungal component more than brown rice would. Um, for people with, who don't have fructose as being much of an issue, um, perhaps they can increase um, some of their fruits more, such as bananas. Um, bananas are one of the higher carb fruits. And so that can be a, a good way um, but yeah, it's really hard. You have to find out which ones work for you. Some some people can do um, a little bit more of like some of the gluten-free grains that are low FODMAP, things like um, millet or sorghum. Um, sometimes those are made into breads that have not so lovely <laughs> ingredients in them. Um, so, but you can also make a porridge out of them, for example, or quinoa and make a porridge out of it. It's on how they, on how they start reintroduction. Yeah, I don't think there's one right way to do it. Um, sometimes people are just like, I am craving carbs and I'm feeling up for it today. And they just go for it. And they are like, I don't even care what's going to happen. And then they end up feeling amazing the next day. And so for some people, that's how they need to do it because um, that's what works for them. For other people who are maybe wanting to be a little more cautious about it or more um, calculated in their approach, um, I say starting with having, I like to have people, um, do their trial. For example, if they're adding a new food at dinner time, because that way, if they do have symptoms, it doesn't interfere with their work day or, um, any social activities perhaps that they have, um, planned for that day. Um, it tends because people fast overnight while they're sleeping, usually, um, it kind of gives the system a, a chance to reset and they might feel better in the morning if they end up do having symptoms. Um, so starting with just a small amount of one of whichever, I also encourage people to like go with what resonates with you. If there's a certain food that you feel like this is something that I feel like worked well for me in the past and I'd like to try that, go for it. Um, and yeah, just starting small and then notice for reaction. Um, some people are okay. And they're like, Nope, I think I'm really good with that. I want to try it again the next day. Um, some people, their symptoms take longer to develop. Um, and so waiting, um, one or two days before trying again and increasing the amount can be important for some people. You talk about having a small portion. What, what does that look like? Is that a teaspoon, a tablespoon, a quarter of a cup? 
Um, what what do you generally go for in terms of quantity? Yeah, I think that a good starting place is two tablespoons of like white rice or um, maybe a quarter of a banana, um, half a banana perhaps. Um, and then working up to, okay, well, what's a normal serving for a meal? Maybe if someone feels really good, maybe they're fine with up to a cup per meal um, or one banana per meal, that kind of thing. I think the key message that I'm getting out of this is that it really is, um, it can really be about quantity and starting slow. Don't go crazy on that first um, experiment with your new food and, and, uh, and be a bit measured in your approach because, you know, you might be able to tolerate two tablespoons today, but if you'd just gone for a full three quarter of a cup that your system would be like, whoa, (laughs) that's way too much. Um, But it's like, yeah, I can deal with this two tablespoon load. I can cope with that. Yeah, perhaps. And, and I think it really depends at where someone's at and they're, they're healing too, because sometimes people are really surprised that they can tolerate a, a pretty decent amount, but I wouldn't advise them to do that necessarily if I was their nutritionist, just because I wouldn't want to be the one throwing them into symptoms. Um, but if they're really feeling, cause our, our tolerance may change from day to day based on so many different factors that are going on in our lives. And so if someone is just feeling really good one day, maybe that's, that's the time to try more whereas if they're already feeling not so good and then they try even the two tablespoons, maybe it will make them react. Um, so really listening to your body and getting in tune with what are your symptoms telling you? I really like that. And I think that, uh, you know, checking in each day or even each each meal time to see how you're feeling uh, is a good way to approach it rather than saying on Wednesday it's the day that I'm trialing rice and Wednesday comes around and you're like oh I feel miserable today but I said I'd do it on Wednesday and I'm doing it and then surprise surprise you have a reaction to that food. Um, if we're sitting down to eat this first meal with let's say two tablespoons of white rice and it's the first white rice that we've had in months and we're feeling really nervous about it we're looking at it on the plate we're feeling nervous we can feel perhaps our heart rate is, our heart rate has risen what's your advice on on how to approach this kind of scenario yeah that's a tricky one um i think the, the deep breaths that we mentioned before, if that's still not working, um, definitely like putting on some music or whatever for you makes you feel calm. Um, if the food could last a little bit, maybe going on a short walk, um, that can often be really helpful for people to kind of get out of their head, um, and into their body. Um, yeah, those would be the main strategies. And if it's more than that, then that might be, um, the place where someone needs to seek, um, more help from a practitioner who has um, an, a good understanding of that psychological piece and how to how to change that mindset. I've spoken to a psychologist who um, is a health psychologist, and and I think someone like that um, can be really beneficial to someone because they've got the psychological skills, but they've also got the health approach. And so seek just literally doing a Google search and seeing who's in your area for health psychologist or food psychologist. Um, if the phobia or fear is really strong, might be a good a good support person to bring into your team. It might be just a, a short-term um, person on your team. You might need longer support, but um, you know, there's so much psychological component to our eating and our approach to food that I think that uh, having having a skilled person can be can be really beneficial. 
One of the other things that we see um, and one of the concerns I hear from people as well is around nutritional deficiencies. What are you you seeing in your clinical practice around types of common um, deficiencies that people with SIBO um, may well experience? Yeah, absolutely. So it'll definitely depend on which diet they're following. Um, But I work most with people um, on low FODMAP diets who are maybe incorporating a little bit of SIBO diets as well. Um, But um, there's actually a little bit of research um, literature that cites um, on the low FODMAP diet calcium and fiber being the common things um, that people are deficient in on the low on low FODMAP. Um, and when we look at where is calcium coming from, most people think of cows, right? Um, and then there's maybe in the more holistic side, people say, oh no, you don't need to drink milk. You can get enough calcium from your foods. And I find that that really is true for many people, um, that they don't need milk to get enough calcium, but not if not if they're being, they have to really be conscientious about it in order and know which foods to eat. And the other thing is that um, if you're combining um, a low FODMAP with dairy-free versus not, that's going to be a piece here in how much some how much calcium someone's getting. Um, but a lot of the non-dairy sources um, of calcium are high FODMAP. So looking at that for people, um, but um, it, it's, you kind of have to look at what foods someone exactly is eating, but some of the foods that are low FODMAP dairy free that would have a decent, um, source of calcium would be things like fortified milks. So if someone's buying their almond milk from the grocery store, that's likely going to have calcium added to it. But if they're making their almond milk at home, there's going to be much less calcium. So being aware of that, um, canned bone in fish is another um, big source of calcium. And that's because the little bones, such as in like canned salmon, those are where the calcium is located. Um, and then other sources would be things like leafy green vegetables, especially collard greens and spinach, um, broccoli, and then green beans and oranges, and even cinnamon have a little bit of calcium. Um, but those are really minute when you're comparing it to what people need for the day. Um, so that's kind of the first one that I think of. Um, shall we move to the second, some of the other common ones I see, or do you have any comments on that? Yes, let's do that. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, let's move to the other ones you see. Yeah. So the the next most common, well, I don't know if I have an order because it really depends on the person. Um, there's fiber, but that's, that's a tricky subject because um, for a lot of people, fibrous foods they've known to cause their symptoms. Um, so really, um, that's an individualized, um, one, but, um, folate is something that I see people lacking when they eat a low FODMAP diet. And that's because the highest sources of FODMAPs are things like lentils and beans, um, and some of the high FODMAP vegetables like asparagus and beets and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts, um, so people often aren't eating a lot of those. Um, and it's folate is super, super important um, for our cardiovascular health, um, for our brain and our nervous system, our red blood cells. Um, and then the group that I really worry about um, are women of reproductive age 
who are following a low FODMAP diet, um, especially if they're trying to get pregnant, um, because folate plays such a critical role um, in the first few weeks of pregnancy. So before a lot of women know that they're pregnant. Um, and so really making sure that someone is getting enough folate in their diet is, is really important. Um, so some of the low FODMAP sources of folate would be things like um, spinach and other greens like turnip greens. I know most people probably are like, what, what do I do with that? Um, <laughs> broccoli, romaine lettuce, even, um, bok choy, parsley. Um, I think papaya even. Um, so that's kind of fun. Uh, add a fruit in there. Cause some people don't like to get their leafy greens, but leafy greens are super, super important, um, for getting folate if, if you're not eating beans, especially. Um, so yeah, that's the second one that I see. Um, and, and just to kind of give people an idea on that, like how, how much folate is in something. So, um, say you had like two romaine lettuce leaves in your morning smoothie. And then at lunch you had a salad or maybe some steamed vegetables that had like three cups of arugula. And then for dinner had 10 steamed green beans um, and like three cups of kale, um, like raw kale that you either cook or you have it as, as a salad if you tolerate raw vegetables. Um, that's only going to get you to like 50% of the recommended daily value for calcium. And so um, just being aware of that um, and, and talking to your practitioner about whether you need to supplement um, can be important. Can know um, whether we are deficient in these things. Can we tell it by symptom, or do we need to be doing te blood tests and and, uh, and te nutritional deficiency tests to know whether we are truly deficient? Yeah. So with folate, I, I think it's easiest to see on a on a blood test um, if there's an issue. But there are some symptoms like fatigue. If someone has um, anemia from a folate deficiency anemia. Um, fatigue would be a common symptom. Um, there are also some like symptoms that you could look at yourself. Um, like if there's a lot of hangnails on the fingers, that can be a sign of folate deficiency. It can also mean other things, but hangnails, um, periodontal issues, thinning hair in women, those can indicate issues with folate. Um, it doesn't mean it is the issue, but it could be. <laughs> um, and then with calcium, um, kind of similar stuff. So periodontal problems can, can arise there, um, with deficiency, um, also thin or weak fingernails. Like if someone can bite off their nail really easily, um, that's, that's a pretty weak fingernail. If someone has a stronger nail, that's hard to bite. Um, that's showing that could be a sign of calcium. Um, but that's, that's a, that's a difficult topic too, because there's also, um, other vitamins that, that play a role in the absorption of cal of calcium. Um, so we need vitamin D in order to absorb calcium. And then in order to sort of absorb vitamin D, we need vitamin K2. Um, so making sure those are kind of like a trio that are going together is important. I don't know if my listeners were just doing this, but I was, I was testing my fingernails. I was looking at to see whether, you know, <laughs> whether I'd be able to bite them as you were saying that. And uh, I'm happy to report. I couldn't. 
<laughs> but I did notice actually awesome. as, as um as I went through my SIBO treatment, the health of my nails really improved. My nails used to just flake and bend and and peel off so easily. And now they're much stronger. Um, you know, I used to find if I had my hands in water, even for what felt like seconds, if I went to grab something or pick something with a nail that I'd immediately be bending it straight back on itself and it was really uncomfortable but now I, I don't have that and they grow to quite a long length um they just annoy me and I cut them off but there, there's a big difference in my nails since coming through the other side of SIBO which is fascinating yeah it's really fascinating and sometimes it's hard to know like why exactly was that um because it's often a, a combination of things but um I, I love that with when you do start to recognize these things, it's so easy to try eating more of certain foods rather than you don't have to supplement and, and, and see what's happening with kind of these more subtle signs where we don't really know if it's an issue. It's just like, oh, let's let's focus on this week eating lots more leafy greens and see if see if things improve a little bit. So And I think that um, you know, for me these changes didn't happen overnight. It was a slow progression. And I look back now and go, oh gosh, look how much stronger my nails are. I can't bite them. <laughs> I can't bite them off like Riley was just talking about. Um, but, you know, I didn't like I woke up one day and overnight my nails had improved. It took months. And in fact, months of me not even noticing anything was changing until one day I thought, oh, look at my nails. That's amazing that's so different so um yeah you know people who are listening it it might it might not happen overnight but it will happen (laughs) definitely definitely yeah maybe maybe a couple months would be a better trial period than a week actually (laughs) yeah exactly now one of the things that you do which I think is a great support and I'd like to talk about finding support and getting support we've talked about finding practitioners that are experienced with SIBO but there's other lifestyle support that you can also um bring into your life just to take the, the just to ease the burden of SIBO and something you do Riley which I think is great is that you cook for people um do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that can help somebody that is perhaps really in that zone of just overwhelm when it comes to food and cooking and living with SIBO yeah definitely so the way that I normally work with people is um I will plan their meal for the week or their meals. So usually it's between two and four meals that people will want help or it's more of like supplementing their own cooking. Um, But I will plan those meals and then I'll do their grocery shopping for them. I'll go to their house and I'll cook the food and I'll put it in some glass Tupperware, prevent those toxins. Um, And then they can eat it throughout the the week or on the designated meal times that they want. Um, And it's, it's very flexible and there's a lot of different services out there um, that range from you can pick it up and, and grab it and go versus um, having someone come into your home. But basically, it's, it's exhausting to meal plan and cook. It takes time. And with a lot of people's lifestyles, it's, it's really not feasible for them to do a good job at it um, without losing sleep or losing really important um, things in their life or things that they enjoy. Um, if, if cooking isn't one of those, for example. Um, so yeah, having someone cook for you can be an option. It, it can be pricey and not, um, affordable for some people, but maybe one meal a week or two meals a week would be affordable for someone. Um, and then there's also a lot of other services out there, um, that might 
might be able to cater to people. So I know that here in Portland, um, there's um, a business called Cultured Caveman that makes um, low FOD, they can do low FODMAP, paleo. I think they can cater to a lot of different needs um, and they make food and put it in jars. And I think you pick it up there. Um, And I think there's also other um, meal services that do similar things. Um, If that's not an option, there's also... Um, I know here in Portland, there's a company called Grocery Getter that I use. And what how it works is that they deliver fresh produce to my door um, every two weeks. I think you can do it every week if you want. Um, it's super affordable. It's organic. And um, I can tell them I only want low FODMAP items. And they'll bring me low FODMAP items. Um, it's really great for, for just removing one. It's one less thing to think, one less thing to think about, for example, just okay, I don't have to go to the store and pick out all my produce for the week. Um, so that's another option. And then for people who maybe don't have to eat such a such a restrictive diet, they don't have to do low FODMAP, um, but they feel better doing paleo or, um, or some other diet. There are companies like um, Sunbasket that will deliver food to your house with recipes of what to do with it. Um, so just figuring out what sort of services are in your area that could make your life a little bit easier when it comes to cooking um, might help people really get through some of their healing and be able to spend more time focusing on themselves and um, taking taking a break, <laughs> something we're not always good at in our in society. I, I love hacking things. I'm always looking for diet hacks, recipe hacks, lifestyle hacks, and and hacking the the stress out of. Um, you know, just life with SIBO, I think can be a really great um, solution. And if, and I think, in, and again, it's investing in yourself. So investing in someone like you to to, to, do, to cook meals, to develop a menu plan, or investing in having your produce delivered to your door. So that's one less thing that you have to worry about when you've got a whole bunch of other things that you've got in your mind can really just be, you know, supportive to helping you on your way to, you know, recover from, from you know, a disordered digestive system, which is ultimately what's happening with SIBO. Um, and I'm all about making things easier for ourselves. Let's not make it harder for ourselves. Life's hard enough as it is. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Riley, it's been great having you on the show today. If anybody would like to reach out and connect with you, what's the best way to do so? Yeah. Absolutely. My website is bridgetownnutrition.com and I have a contact form on there if people want to go ahead and just send me a message there. Um, I also, if people are interested in a consultation, I have um, a scheduling system through my website so people can look at my availability and schedule their appointment there. Riley Wiminger, it's been great having you on the Healthy Gut Podcast. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Riley Wiminger. If you would like to get the show notes or connect with Riley, all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash food phobias. And I've got all of the links and the resources that uh, Riley um, mentioned in today's show at thehealthygut.co forward slash food phobias. 
Now, if you're based in Melbourne, Australia, and you would like some help with shopping for food, I have just released my next round of SIBO shopping tour dates. So I've got an event each month for the next three months, in October, November, and December, where I take you and a small group of fellow SIBOers to a fresh food market and we go shopping together. It's so much fun. I absolutely adore doing it. And my previous guests have had an absolute ball. Not only are we shopping for SIBO-friendly foods, but they also have had the opportunity to meet fellow SIBOers, often making lifelong friendships as a result. So if you would like to know more about my SIBO shopping tours in Melbourne, Australia, head to the show notes, thehealthygut.co forward slash food phobias and just click on the link for SIBO shopping tours and that will take you straight to it. I really hope you enjoyed today's show and if you did it would be really great if you could leave a rating and review in iTunes or the app you use to listen to this podcast. It really also helps other people to know if this is the right podcast for them. And don't forget, we are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. I love seeing you on those platforms, so do come and say hi. We're there under The Healthy Gut. Coming up in next week's show, we're joined by Sharon Treadgold. Sharon is a client of mine. She's actually a participant in my SIBO coaching program. And she has just had a most incredible journey with SIBO from where she was when I met her seven months ago to where she is today has been truly remarkable at how much she has been able to transform her health. Sharon is just engaging and so inspiring and a true real life story of one woman's incredible journey with SIBO. So I really look forward to sharing my discussion with you, with Sharon, next week. See you then. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.